Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Elevate Podcast. Whether you've tuned in to elevate your mindset, your game, or just your day, you have found the right place. Grab your notepad and pen because we are definitely going to clash for this episode. My guest is the Nevada Foundation Professor in the Behavior Analysis Program at the Department of Psychology at the University of Nevada. He's the author of 44 books and nearly 600 scientific articles. His career is focused on an analysis of the nature of human language and cognition. He is the developer of relational frame theory, an account of human higher cognition, and has guided its extension to acceptance and commitment therapy, ACT, a popular evidence-based form of psychotherapy that uses mindfulness, acceptance, and values-based methods. Google Scholar data ranks him among the top most cited scholars in all areas of study, living or dead. He's been recognized for several awards for his contributions in basic behavioral research and its applications. He's also a Lifetime Achievement Award winner from the Association of Behavioral and Cognitive Therapy. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast, Dr. Stephen Hayes. thing I'm fascinated with, if you could briefly explain for us, is acceptance and commitment theory. Could you share a little bit about that? Yeah. When, in the sports world, we call it acceptance and commitment training, or in the psychotherapy world, we call it acceptance and commitment therapy. But either way, it's ACT. And um, been around for about 40 years, but uh, worked really hard on really essentially trying to hack the human mind and figure out what's going on in the basement. And so there's a whole basic science underneath it, maybe two, 3,000, 4,000 studies, something like 400 randomized trials. So it's a big volume of scientific data. But what, what ACT basically does is says, you know, what the challenge is, is, is how to sort of uh, open up, to show up, and to, and to move forward towards what you care about. And that mm-hmm. to do that, you, you need to find ways to be able to interact with your mind more like you would with uh, somebody who is talking with you rather than somebody who's your boss or worse, who you really are. Uh, and you need to be able to sort of focus on what's important and leave the rest, including what's going on just out around you. I mean, what's going on outside, especially in sports and high performance, you've got to keep your eye on the ball, as they say. Sure. And, uh, and when you're looking inward, and fighting with what's inside, you know, you're just making it more difficult to do that. But then that final piece of, you know, what do you really want to be about? What, what kind of, who do you want to be? What is the kind of person you want to be? What kind of legacy are you trying to create? Not in this sort of self-objectification thing of I'm Guy Grand or trying to win a prize, but more like, how do you be true to yourself? You know, yeah. how does your journey as an athlete, as a high performer, but as a person fit with, what you really want to have reflected in your life's moments. And so ACT as a collection of uh, acceptance and mindfulness processes, commitment and behavior change processes that target all those things. And it turns out it's just useful everywhere that the human mind goes. Well, I know it would have been useful when, when I played uh, sports back in college, for sure, because I think the uh, uh, getting control of my narrative um, was a process. Um, well, a lot of the things that you're encouraged to do as an athlete 
uh, is based on more common sense and experience of coaches, some of whom, you know, were working with people who may not be at your level. And, you know, a lot of coaches things sort of hang on and they become traditions. They're never really subjected to science. Now we've changed mm -hmm. a lot of that. Yeah. You know, money ball, et cetera. We figured out big data, focus on, you know, you know, there isn't a sports team out there that doesn't have some sort of data analyst or, or people, you know, taking slow motion pictures of, of your swing or whatever. Yeah. But in, in the mental performance area, not so much. Not so much. It's still filled with, you know, spooky folk wisdom that some coach came up with. And yeah, it may motivate people because you can say it with sincerity and you mean it when you say it. Sure. But, you know, something like don't think, just hit. Thank you, Yogi. That's a great thing. But how the hell do I do that? Yeah. And you, what you easily can do is try to suppress what you think so that you don't think it. And guess what? That's a train wreck. And I can show you the science of why that's a train wreck. So doing common sense doesn't put you doesn't give you the competitive edge. You're going to have to have the uncommon sense of the best that science has got. And that's kind of what we've done. And it's why there are act sports coaches and Olympic teams around the world, professional teams, and not just that, but business and industry and places where people need to perform, but also in diet, exercise, uh, and um, dealing with injury. And also things like avoiding mental health problems, substance use problems, and all that. Sure. With all your years of study, what uh, continues to fascinate you about human behavior in the brain? Well, what got me really kind of in was why it's so hard to be human. I mean, I, 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 mean, I was, came into psychology out of Maslow, peak performances. You know, how can we be the best person you want to be? But then as I got more into clinical and as I developed a panic disorder, thank God for that, oh, I would have been a train wreck without that train wreck. But uh, <laughs> because it gave me a, you know, a, a little gut check. Um, and, uh, you know, that central question, we're complicated creatures, man. We're, we're different than the bird outside the window. And we're doing something that's really hard. To, on the one hand, have all these learning processes that are half a billion years old, learning by association, learning by direct experience. And on the other hand, have these processes that are a couple hundred thousand or maybe 2.8 million years old. It, can't, it has to be less than that because the language trained chimps don't do what your 12-month-old baby does, that if they, your baby doesn't do it, they're not going to be on your show because they're not going to have <laughs> human language. And so we're doing something brand new. And that's wonderful. Look at what we're doing right now. We're talking about how, I don't know how many miles away you are, but you're probably pretty far away and we're in yeah, real yeah. time having a conversation and that's a product of our mind on the one hand. On the other hand, young people are a standard deviation worse in anxiety, depression, et cetera, than they were 30 years ago right now. Yeah. And some of it is just being exposed to the flow of horror, comparison, judgment, et cetera, that's in the modern media. And it's just overwhelming our ability to have peace of mind with purpose. So it's getting harder to be human, even though we're getting better and better at all the things that you'd think would be hard, like avoiding disease, having enough food to eat, being able to communicate across, I mean, having stimulation, but just clicking on a button. I mean, sure. oh my God, we're doing stuff that is so spectacular compared to human history. 
And still, it's worse, not better, in the area of our psychology. So, so what's up with that? That's what really interests me. Yeah, let's turn into that for a second. I think you mentioned kind of the whore, the comparison, um, these things that myself growing up weren't accessible. Uh, Cell phones were really just coming of age as I got into college as as being commonplace. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the science behind what I think athletes so quickly come into as they see standings and they see sports rankings? Is that comparison and how... Uh, it can just create that internal fight that doesn't always need to be there. Yeah. Well, comparisons are fine. You know, that kind of competition kind of thing, but there's certain places it can go that are not so fine. Like if you get it connected to your self-worth, to who you are, to your self story, to your capacity to grow, to change and to risk and to do, man, you know, it can put you in a place where, you know, a batting slump, uh, means there's something wrong with you, with who you are. Yeah. You know, and when you model this in the lab, you have people engaging in competitive things and especially social things. And you do the functional equivalent of, let's say, benching a person or uh, having them be excluded because they're not good enough or these kind of comparative things that naturally happen, for example, in te- team sports and competitive sports and sure. high performance areas. I mean, literally, people's rating of the meaning of life goes down in about 10 minutes of these lab tasks. And you're going like, what? Yeah. But yeah, that's how social we are. That's how much our self-story penetrates us and harnesses these ancient brain functions that are, didn't adapt for that. You know, this, for example, this narrative self, I'm a person who settles into the midbrain regions of your brain and starts actively filtering out sensory motor information that conflicts the story. It didn't design for that. Your brain was, you know, was well evolved before human language showed up. This is a little added thing, a little, little add, addition, a little thin cortical overlay, and it's added to it. But man, it knows how to go down and just command these almost alligator brainstem level functions. And next thing you know, you're, you're feeling as though you're, it's just awful. You've lost everything. And, and all that's happened is, no, there's a little story that you got hooked into about uh, how you're not worth anything or in some ways, long-term worse, how great and grand you are. Because the positive stories, when you really wrap yourself around them, can also filter out information. And you can have a, a spouse who's not happy with you or, uh, you know, people that you've let down and you're so much inside your narcissism you can't even see it so you got to watch out for what uh, the story itself will do good bad or indifferent it'll create a clown suit that you climb into and you won't even know you're wearing it Ooh. and and the brain will stop giving you information that'll contradict it and it becomes self-amplifying and it's only your best friends to tell you the truth i like that analogy of stepping into the clown suit um, you've spent your career studying language and cognition. What are some key simple things that student athletes should know about that brain and their cognition and how that thing's running up there? Well, what's logical isn't necessarily what's psychological. I mean, rationally, you'd think, for example, you don't like a thought, just get rid of it. Focus on it, deny it, challenge it, dispute it, change it, push it away, suppress it, you know, get rid of it. 
that's fine with dirt on your floor or painting peel on the walls or a big messy desk. It's a train wreck when you're applying it to cognition that's inside your head because these things are historical. It's a wild horse. You can connect anything to anything else with the human mind because it's a relational uh, ability, not an associative one. And every single time you focus on what's weak, what's wrong, what, what, you, what you hate, you just created another neurobiological pathway to that thing that makes it easier to access, that makes it more central, and that will allow it to have more influence on your life. That's not logical, but it's psychological. Right. Because that's the way the brain works, and that's the way language and cognition works. And so you need to learn how to regulate your attention but not in a bad cell phone commercial way of, am I there yet? Am I there yet? Am I there yet? Because every time you ask, you look, and every time you look, there it is. Yeah. And so, you know, you're not going to run from your own history and from your own self-doubts and all that. You have to learn how to diminish them the more way you, more like the way you diminish uh, a, a half a glass of water that's too salty. You, you, you don't get out the tweezers and try to find the salt grains. You, you pour in fresh water. In the same way, if your mental ecology has some stuff in there you don't like, pour in some fresh water. It won't diminish and subtract and take away those other things. And if you try to, you make them bigger and not smaller. You make them more central, more important. You give them more control over your behavior. So that, that's the one thing people need to know is uh, be careful about just doing what's logical. You need to know the research to do what is psychologically wise. Now, we kind of know it intuitively, frankly, because, you know, if I asked you just to put your body in a position that showed you, you at your worst with, let's say, your self-doubts or your fears or whatever, and then you at your best with those same things. Yeah. If you had to show me just with your body, you couldn't lose your outside voice. What you're going to do is your eyes will go down, your head will come down, your arms and hands will come in, you'll belk at the, you'll, you'll go into fetal position, you're flopping the floor. All of that says you're, you're hiding, you're losing consciousness, you're out, not out as engaged, your arms or kins are coming in so that you can defend your coarse body. If I ask you your best, your head comes up, your eyes open, and your arms and hands go out. Yeah. Yeah, this kind of superhero pose, right? Yeah. Well, okay, we'll do that psychologically. With your worst stuff. Yep. I don't mean to bully it. I don't mean bravado. I don't mean bull. I mean the, the root meaning of confidence with fidelity, which comes from a Latin word that means with faith, fides. In other words, I'm a whole adequate person. And yeah, I got a history and I've had failures and I've got, you know, self-doubts and I've done some things wrong in my life. I've made mistakes and things have happened. Let me learn from that. And then bring it into the present moment in a way that allows me to be my best. And, and you're not going to do that if you try to spend your time erasing your history and eliminating your, the echoes of it. All you're going to do is make yourself dumb. Yeah. You mentioned the uh, many, many years of development of our brain. And we talked a little bit about some of the, the people in sports. Uh, do you find sports psychologies in, in its early infancy? And what do you see as kind of one of the next practical, applicable stages that we'll see more of when it comes yeah, to Yeah, I think it is in its infancy. And, in you know, I didn't think I was going to be doing work that area, in that area, but as professional sports teams and so forth and Olympic teams have done it, I've, 
I've, I've been asked to interact, but I've also, for some reason, people showed up in my lab, students who want to do it. So I'm doing studies on, you know, high, with high performance CrossFit athletes and the, with uh, ultra runners on their planking and all kinds of stuff like that. And what we're learning is that if you can learn to rein in this kind of judgmental mind, you open up to your own emotions, focus on what's important and pursue it, your, your, your athletic performance in a values-based way, you have some traction on it. So I think what's going to happen in sports psych is that we're going to go from lay folk wisdom to actually science-based information on the, on the mental performance side. We've already done that with the physical side. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's not a team out there that's successful that doesn't have a whole cadre of folks who are using data and measurement and individual programming that is based on the very best exercise physiology, the very best information about how the body works, how the mind works, not so much. And we're going to have to go from this era of either folk wisdom or sometimes buying in too quickly to models that are out there that say, here's what we need to do. And they even have some evidence that it's positive, but some of what they're saying isn't helpful and some of it is, and they haven't done the work to actually look at the processes. Like if you look at some sort of exercise physiology, let's say, or, or strength conditioning or something like that. I, I work, my, my son works with uh, the guy who uh, uh, trained the half pipe guy who, who won a gold medal out of Reno. I'm blocking on his name. I call him Mad Max, Mac, Max McCannis. He's an awesome, awesome guy. He got a gold medal when his, when his student won a gold medal as an as a Olympic coach. That's um, awesome. You know, they give that. It's not real gold medal, but you know what I mean? It's something that the coaches give to coaches because they're so good. And man, does this guy have knowledge about how the muscles work, the bodies work. And he's doing such precise exercises. My son is getting his black belt right now after 11 years of training. And a kid who had a muscle disorder couldn't hold out a knife and fork when we started. Couldn't do a single push-up, not a single sit-up. Couldn't hold himself on the monkey bars. 11 years later, he's going for his black belt. I'm very proud of him. And wow. what's happened is as he bulks out as a young man and he's get beyond that. But when it comes to, to mental performance, what are the measures? What are the processes? So I think where we're going is a place where we'll be able to look exactly at what the psychological processes are that lead to success. I think we have an idea of some of what they are. I can share a little bit here about what we've learned to have measures of those and to one person at a time, dial it in so that you have the strength and resilience with the mental processes that you have with the physiological processes that make you succeed successful as an athlete. And that goes from one size fits all packages from lay w wisdom, from your favorite coach, just talking down to an iterative process where we're, we're in the laboratory and in our uh, competition, dialing these things in and getting better and better at targeting things like psychological flexibility, psychological resilience, grit. Those things are made up of certain mental performance skills. They're actual skills you can use and that you can learn. And so we know at least uh, five or six of them and that's been the journey i've been on for 40 years is how to hack the mind so that i know what those are and i think those are going right inside sports psychology i feel like it kind of parallels some of the physiological development where 
in the 50s and 60s, professional athletes had other jobs and just kind of walk out to competitions and then training and, and all these things started to change where mentally you can't just walk into competition and walk in that practice anymore. And we're starting to, to realize that and evolve. And so I think it's great for well, athletes. And, you know, we're used to like mental health showing up when you have a train wreck, you know, like, yeah, that's, somebody gets into an addiction problem. Somebody, you know, gets depressed or anxious, whatever. Yeah. But mental resilience, mental strength, mental performance is exactly like physical resilience, physical, physical performance. You wouldn't say to somebody, oh, I'm so sorry, you're sick. I guess now you have to exercise. Yep. I mean, you would never do that. You wouldn't think of doing that. You say, no, dude, you got to be exercising in order to have the kind of strength and resilience that avoids injury and to have the kind of body that will resist illness. Well, we don't do that on the mental side. We, we treat it as a one out of five problem, and one out of five people have some mental health disorder. No, it's a five out of five problem. And if <laughs> yeah. you didn't know this before COVID, man, do you know it now? Because you just look around. Is there anybody not feeling a little anxious? Is there anyone not feeling a little worried? No, everybody worldwide. Yeah. So time's up. You know, it's time to get into a more modern posture where our mental strength and resilience is as much a task of what you do when you train from elementary school forward as what you're learning inside your diet and exercise uh, and uh, performance, uh, physical performance uh, training. Yeah, I think it's moving out of that mental rehab and getting into exactly how, how do we mental prehab for an athletic journey that we're going to take on. Exactly. And, and work Some of these it. things, I mean, they're not so complicated. It's not like it's blah, 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 psychobabble, blah, blah, blah. You know, psychologists will talk very in a geeky way and you give me half a chance, I'll love to do it. But they can also make things simpler. And that's part of what I've really been interested in trying to do is, is to try to do that. You know, I'll give you, an, give you an example, let's say, from attention. Uh, attention is critical to, to an athlete and it's not that complicated. It means being able to narrow your focus or broaden your focus to maintain your focus or shift your focus. That's it. Yep. Broaden or narrow, shift or stay. That's it. This is not such a complicated set. What is a little complicated about it or a, there's other processes that are, can interfere. Like, for example, if you're fighting a world within, you know, you're not going to like, oh, my God, I'm in such a batting slump. Oh, I've got to get a hit. You know, that's the last thing you want to do in the batter's box. If you're trying to not think that, oh, don't think about that or I won't get a hit, you're already thinking about it. <laughs> thinking about not thinking about it is thinking about it. Yep. That's not logical, but it's psychological. And so how do you do? Well, you do what? Uh, people have learned how to do it. This is why mindfulness is coming into sports. It's not like this is brand new on the planet. I mean, we have in all of our wisdom traditions, in every religion, by the way, it's not just Buddhist, but not just that, in all of our self-help traditions, we've got these training on how to be more uh, allocated tension in a flexible, fluid, and voluntary way. If you imagine just, let's say, following your breath, well, your attention is going to wander within two minutes. You ever tried to do it? I mean, you can last maybe 30 seconds, maybe a minute, but then, you know, you're off on something else. 
you might be off on something like, boy, I'm doing a good job today. No, and you're gone. That wasn't your task. You're supposed to follow the breath. So you bring the puppy back. You do it again. What happens when you wander away? You bring the puppy back. You do it again. What's the purpose? That's the purpose. The purpose is attentional training. Is to catch when you wander and bring it back voluntarily. Why? So that when the task requires it, you know how to focus or to shift focus or to broaden focus or to narrow focus. And so, uh, you know, we have a whole series of kind of exercises and things that we do inside the act work. Uh, some of that drawn from contemplative practice. I like the things that you can do in 30 seconds or 60 seconds. I don't know, the 10 day silent retreats, other people can do that. Give because us an example something we can do in a minute. Well, okay, so I'll give you an intentional task. This has been shown to help, especially, it's especially good with, uh, if you're getting emotionally upset and you can do it without focusing on your breath because sometimes you need your breath if you're doing something yeah. uh, athletic. Just take a few seconds to focus on the sole of your left foot and just know what the sole of your left foot feels like. And then take a few seconds to focus on the sole of your right foot and notice what that feels like. And now a little harder, fuzz those two and expand it so that you can focus on both at once without shifting, not ting, 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 not left, right, left, right, left, right. But just like a flashlight beam that gets a little dimmer, but because it's spreading the light around for a broader thing and it has those adjustable lenses, expand your attentional focus and see if you can feel both feet. I bet you can do it for just a little bit with practice. You can do it for a long time, but yeah, it, that's it. it. That's it. it. It it does remind me of when I, I've been meditated for about f- almost five years, but it reminds me of first learning how to meditate and just yeah, get, no, it, get, it, it getting opens the door. It opens the door, you know, I mean, and it would yeah. contemplative practice and improve that skill. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, long-term like meditative practice. But, you know, it's only something like one out of five people keep a practice going. And if you look at the neurobiological changes from contemplative practice, some of them happen with just a a few minutes a day. I mean, this is not necessarily being a, you know, a monk at an ashram or something. Most of those folks are given alms to do that. You know, we've got work to do. (laughs) So uh, here in the West, we're trying to make everybody be monks. That doesn't make sense to me. So, Yeah. Just a little exercise. You can do that in elementary school. There's, there's like six studies doing that with people who are, have IQs of 70 or who are chronically mentally ill. So if they can do it, you can do it. Wow. And, wow. Uh, and, you know, that's just an example of one of, you know, hundreds of uh, attentional training tasks. Let me give you one more. When you're yes. listening to music, mm-hmm. just for fun, focus on the baseline. Just the bass line. Okay. And then focus on just the guitar. And then focus on both those. And then focus on just the drums. Just do it. Pull it like apart, it. put it back together. Broaden and narrow, shift and stay. You can do it all day long if you want to and have these little micro exercises that may be there when you need it and you got to hit a 100 mile an hour fastball or, you know, know what kind of top spin that the serve has on it or whatever it is. Yeah. What's, um, do you see as the role of, of language within a team framework and how important I think we don't understand sometimes how vital the language we say to ourselves is, 
but can you talk a little bit about maybe that role and then actually when it leaves our lips and hits our teammates ears? Yeah. Our styles of thinking start with our styles of speaking. I mean, to some degree, symbolic thinking is uh, internalized speech, not just muscle movements in your larynx or something, but I mean the process of relating events. And when you understand that the mind is a relational engine, not an associative one, and that it can relate anything to anything else in any possible way, it's such a wild horse that you, you really want to work on how to use language in such a way that it doesn't use you. So you want a kind of mental approach that's open, flexible, focused on the present, that admits what you can learn from the past, but brings yourself into the present and then focus on what's important and get the job done. A metaphor I use before I get to the group one, it's uh, since I work a little bit with the mental performance coaches at the Blue Jays, I've got mostly baseball metaphors in my head. And uh, one that I kind of like is like a, a pitcher who's uh, pitching from a half windup on the mound. And if you watch what they do, they get centered on the mound. They put their arms up and then they get centered with their, uh, uh, excuse me, I just had a, a call. I'm do it again. I don't know if you can do this in post-production, but you get centered on the mound. Then you put your arms out and then you bring your, the ball down into the mid. And then you, you look at the, where, where are you going to throw, throw the ball? And then it's full send, full commit. Those four steps, let, let them, just take that imagery and think about this is what you want to do with your mental, uh, symbolic, verbal self, that little part of you that's talking. Is you allow it to get centered in consciousness so that a part of you is able to notice what's going on. That's like being centered on the mound. That, metaphor, that thing of putting your arms out instead of then settling down, it's like opening up. Okay, give me what you got. Including your mind may give you stuff that you don't like, etc. Oh, you got to, this, you know, this guy might be able to, he's a home run hitter. He might be able to, whatever, blah, 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 blah. Okay. And then get settled in consciousness now, balanced, balanced over your feet, you know, where you have that kind of sense of I'm ready to go. That looking at the, uh, catcher's myth that's like what are the values what is the purpose what's the intention what are you yeah. doing here what's it about and then commitment full send you know you don't half throw a ball if you half throw a ball good luck you know and you're, you're throwing you're not pitching you gotta give let your body knows what it has been trained to do and frankly your mind's not fast enough even to direct that literally your muscle can't give information passed into the central parts of your brain to interpret the information and still guide what you're doing. You have to just let your body do what you've grooved it to do. That's why you practiced. So get your mind out of the way and full send, let all that training loose. And so that combination of centered, open, focused, full send, focused on purpose. And now if you bring that into a social situation, into your team situation, you know, be careful about, for example, critical languages. Yep, people need little bumps and corrections, but really what they need is support and being here and being focused. So let's get together. Let's focus. I'm cool with that. Group values. What are our team values? I'm cool with that. When we're wandering from those, hey, a little check, but in a social supportive way where your language sort of lets the person know that they're welcome, they're belonging, they're, they're a teammate, you've got their back. You know, even if they're being a jerk, 
at a particular time. Yeah, we'll give them a little ne negative feedback, but more like a maybe a joke, maybe a nudge, maybe a, not a rip them out a new orifice. Right. You know, because you don't want that kind of chatter in your head, distracting you from being able to get centered, focused, and full scent. You don't want to put it in your teammate's head. And so, you know, there's a, a science behind this. There's a, there's a gal, uh, Eleanor Ostrom, won the Nobel Prize in 2009, showing that indigenous peoples can work together to protect their common pool resources, their fisheries, their forests, without government intervention, private ownership, and all that kind of stuff, without top-down command and control, without bottom-up greed is good, selfish stuff, by feeding processes of cooperation by learning how to be a good team and so you know if indigenous peoples can do it without science we can learn to do it with science of being able to focus on our values and what we have as an overall team to be able to deal with conflict in a way that's quick and fair to have an agreed upon purpose to do gentle correction not chop your head off correction to bump people back in include them Try to find what's good about your teammates and let them be good at what they do and be part of the team and, and doing that. And then, uh, you know, working together to achieve those ends and, and yeah, monitor your ends, but uh, monitor them in the context of we're working together to get this thing done. And um, so that's, you know, part of what the joy of team sports is that you get to have that experience. There's nothing more joyful for this kind of social primates that we are when that's working. And there is a science for how that works. And actually we're pretty good at that in athletics. I think that is a part of coaching that very often is good. I do not like soft coaching and I do not like fear-based coaching. I like cooperation, accountability, teamwork, getting better improvement. That's inclusive, gentle guiding, but uh, has that kind of, dialectical balance of yeah we expect you to step up and we know that you can 